Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Helen Brown is a newspaper columnist and author originally from New Zealand and now living in Melbourne. She has published 10 books and has written regular columns for papers such as the Christchurch Star, Marlborough Express and Live magazine. This year she was awarded the Qantas Columnist of the Year for her work in Next magazine. Her latest book is Cleo. It's the story of the cat Cleo who entered her life one week after her oldest son was killed and stayed with her and her family for 24 years. It will be released in Australia in September 2009. So Helen, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Valerie. Now, Helen, you're a journalist by trade, but you have published many books. How is the process of writing for, as, as a journalist different to writing a book, in your opinion? Well, I think writing columns for newspapers and magazines is a bit like going swimming 15 lengths at your local swimming pool. Right. And writing a book is like swimming the Tasman, I <laughs> <laughs> That's so, basically the difference, but there are similarities in that uh, both uh, forms of the craft demand uh, structure and a column or a piece of writing for a newspaper isn't very interesting if it uh, hasn't got a shape um, in the features section anyway. And, and it's certainly the same with the book, so it's expanding on the same um, techniques really. Do you have a preference? Because obviously one is much shorter than the other. Do you enjoy one more than the other? Uh, well, I <laughs> I foolishly thought I'd take a few months off writing my weekly syndicated column and have a rest and write a book. And that was a very <laughs> foolish a few uh, weeks. idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because the book um, kind of, well, as any writer listening to the stories, a book uh, takes over your entire life, whereas a column probably only takes over a day or two of a week. Mm. Mm. And so what are your columns about? Well, I'm very fortunate in that um, in our household we have a representative of every decade from the 50s onwards. It's right. partly because I've had a messy life, but it's uh, worked out really well from a writer's perspective and that I've got someone from each generation <laughs> for, for half a century. So I get lots of um, different perspectives of what it's like to be living in the, you know, well, nearly getting on for almost quarter way through the... 2000, mm. you know, um, what it's just like to be alive. And so I suppose that's sort of what I write about. It's very banal, really. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm sure it's not, especially if you've been awarded Qantas Columnist of the Year. <laughs> so I'm sure it's nothing, I'm sure it's far from banal. But tell us about Cleo. How did Cleo enter your life and why did you decide to write about Cleo? Well, in 1983, my oldest son, Sam, was run over and killed in Wellington. 
And um, obviously it was a devastating um, experience for us all. Mm. And um, before, about three weeks before the accident, we'd gone and seen these kittens and um, he had actually chosen this kitten that he wanted to have. And we were so traumatised by his death and mm. everything that I'd actually I'd forgotten all about this kitten. And about three weeks after the funeral, um, this friend turned up on the doorstep with this kitten that Sam had ordered. And, mm. you know, it was the last thing I felt like I could handle, mm. another small thing to look after. Mm. And, but my other son, Rob, really warmed to the cat, this kitten. And so I thought, oh, gosh, well, you know, I'll let them have it for a little while. And they don't live long anyway, and <laughs> we'll just get on with it. And Cleo lived to be nearly 24 years old. <gasps> she saw our family oh, through a long journey of healing um, mm. and recovery. And she was very much part of that. And I guess that's kind of why I wrote the book, to honour her, but also to help other parents who have lost children realise that it's not the end of your life when your child if your child dies and you have to go through this tragedy, but you can survive it. But it's a long journey. Mm. Mm. Now, you claim, I've read that you weren't a cat person when you first got Cleo. Is that correct? No, well, I came from a, a rural, semi-rural upbringing with a mother who despised any form of pet, really, and oh. we had wild cats living under the house, and a couple of them were left in, and they had very short and tortured lives. So, no, I wasn't a trained cat person at all. A <laughs> trained cat person. <laughs> but um, over, the ta- over the years, Cleo trained me very much to respect cats and animals of all kinds and what pets can do for people because, you know, we live in very fearful times now. You know, everyone's so frightened of terrorism or growing old or their lover leaving them and we kind of latch into fear and and animals I think are in a different space altogether and they, they offer us a kind of healing that um, isn't found in pills or surgery and in fact you know now the more research has been done they find that just stroking a cat lowers your blood pressure and you know, they're putting more animals into hospitals and retirement homes because they do have a physical effect on people. And the other thing we seem to be searching for is unconditional love and mm. things no human, very few humans can provide that for us, you know. Mm. Uh, but animals do. And I guess in that sense they are a very valuable part of our lives and since I've written this book I notice it more and more you know I notice people's dogs and and the way people's faces light up in pet shops mm. and you know the way animals serve us and it's it's amazing really. Have you had any other pets since Cleo? Well <laughs> interestingly last year I um, had a brush with breast cancer and oh. had a mastectomy and my sister came to look after me when I came out of hospital and she well, I went for a walk one day and she came back and she said, look, I, I know you're not getting another cat, but uh, I've just been down to the pet shop and there's this really hilarious Siamese kitten. She said, you should come and have a look at it. <laughs> and, of course, we went down there to look at it and now we do have <laughs> Jonah. 
who actually has been very helpful. He was wonderful, again, with the healing process from that surgery. Just to, He brought so much life and laughter into the house, you know, and he'd jump on my bed every morning and just, just to stroke him and mm. feel the vibration of his purring and stuff. It was really helpful, and he's also been very helpful in the writing of this book because I'd forgotten how um, outrageous kittens can be. <laughs> and what's his name? Jonah. We named him sort of, it's a cross between um, Jonah Lomu, the famous oh. All Black, yes. and Jonah from Summer Heights High because oh. he's kind of seemed a clumsy misfit, uh-huh. um, but he's since become very elegant and beautiful but very mad. Mm. And um, is there going to be a book on Jonah as well? I don't know. I think probably not. (laughs) I think he's he's, um, a work of art in himself. He doesn't need any translation. (laughs) Well, take us back to when you decided you wanted to become a writer. How did you pick writing as your Oh, I never picked it. I never picked it. Um, I actually, my mother was a journalist during the the war, all the men went overseas and women suddenly got these plum jobs, you know, and she just loved journalism and talked about what a great job it was and I just ignored all of that because you never want to be what your mother yeah. <laughs> wants you to be. And what I really wanted to do was become a painter, an artist. But Mum also had great hang-ups about sex and um, she sort of drummed it into me that I shouldn't um, have sex until I was married and I looked up the course... Oh for a fine arts and that was four years and I thought God I'm going to have to wait four years before I have sex <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I do that course so but the journalism one was only one year so that's kind of how you end up doing the journalism course that's and it was hilarious. easy <laughs> it was easy because um, you know mum I'd grown up with it so I kind of fell into it really and when I was at journalism school I remember the tutor saying now my dear there's one aspect you must never try you must never become a columnist because your writing style's far too chatty it's like something from the women's weekly well the new zealand women's weekly at that time was very much despised as a publication so that was like a red rag to the proverbial ball (laughs) i've been a columnist for 30 years now wonderful now when you wrote what was your first book and why did you decide to you know, move from columns into the longer form? Well, most of my books have, in fact, been collections of columns, so they're cheats books, really. (laughs) Um, And really, this Cleo book is probably, yeah, it's the first one I've written that is a proper book. So (laughs) (laughs) I I was very naive when I started this about 18 months ago, this book. In that case... In that case, you must have had to have a very different, like, had to change your writing routine considerably because it had you had to write so many more words for the book. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very lonely journey, as they always say. But, I mean, I was sort of hoping I'd find someone who would help, you know, read what I'd written mm. and help me through. But the family are never interested in anything I write because, you know, they're sick of being written about for 30 years and I couldn't think of a friend I could you know inflict this on so from I was never sure whether I was on the right track or not and I just get up in the morning and have my coffee fortunately I live across the road from a good cafe get my takeaway coffee and go for a walk and uh, 
really, I can't write for more than three or four hours a day. I'm exhausted after that. So I, I've been living like a mole, basically, underground doing this book. How long did it take you in the end? Well, I suppose you could say either two years or 25 years, depending <laughs> on your perspective. <laughs> so, yeah, there were sort of stops and starts. And I had given up on it altogether because I... I found it hard getting a good skeleton for the story and you know that took months really and I gave up on it and then I went to a Melbourne writers group course just over a couple of days which you know I always think no matter how long you've been writing there's always something to learn because it's basically a craft mm. and um, I kind of at the end of it, it was a non-fiction writing course at the end of it I kind of read out my idea for this Cleo book and um, I could tell on everyone's faces that it was a story with legs mm. and that was really heartening and so I sort of felt boosted by that and sent the idea off to Alan and Unwin's Friday pitch which is mm. really the fiction so I knew I was being very disobedient <laughs> and uh, well the next week I had an email saying they were interested so that's what got me going and got me finishing it. Fantastic. And so do you, what would your advice be to people? Because obviously there's, there's, you, there's an element of therapy in when you write about, um, when you've written about Cleo, would you say? Do you think that writing is therapeutic for people? Well, I think it might be therapeutic for some people, but I don't know if it's therapeutic for professional writers. Right. <laughs> My doctor said this the other day, you know, having been through this breast cancer, you know, she said, oh, is it cathartic? Mm. And I said, it's not because the sort of writing I do anyway, and it's probably because I do it from a journalistic background, I'm continually thinking of the reader and is mm. this going to work for them? And if they've lost a child or they've had breast cancer, are they going to relate to this? Is this going to help them? So um, I think I have to look for my therapy elsewhere. Right, interesting. <laughs> so when you write a, a regular column, as you have for so many years, do you ever get to the stage of, oh my goodness, is there really enough going on in my life for me to write about something yeah. else? Constantly. <laughs> Constantly. And so I guess it's a bit like walking along a beach and turning over pebbles. You know, you hope to find something every week under mm. a pebble ultimately if you keep looking. And it's keeping uh, keeping faith, really, that something's going to turn up. But I don't know, I'm at a bit of a crossroads at the moment whether to um, just keep writing books or, you know, go back to writing weekly columns because I've had a break from them while I've been doing the book. Mm. And they've both got their challenges, you know. I don't know about the future of newspapers anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. They seem to be going down the gurgler mm -hmm. internationally. So, you know, it's always good to keep open and adjust to changes as they're happening. Do you think it's possible for you to do both in parallel? Yeah, it could be. I mean, yeah. But then sometimes it's nice to have a day off. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so what's next for you? Do you have another book in your head or on your computer for that matter? Oh, certainly not on my computer, but <laughs> I've got a couple of ideas. Um, so the Qantas Award that I uh, had was probably for the series that I wrote on um, the, 
the breast cancer journey, and I know that it's a bit, probably a lot of people find it boring because so many people get it, but it's a fascinating journey and one great reminder to live life to the full, to appreciate every moment. You know, just I'm just sitting here in my study at the moment looking out at the remaining leaves of... Uh, autumn and just to see them out there you know to and that's another thing our animals teach us you know mm. to totally absorb the present so I've learned a lot in the last year mm. about that or been reminded of it so you know maybe there's another book there and I've yeah I've got a few ideas but ideas are, uh, are the cheap they're like words aren't they ideas are cheap <laughs> it's manifesting them that's the hard part mm. yeah. well maybe you ha- have another book in you but maybe it, it could follow in the footsteps of Marley and me and turn into something on the big screen well I, I gather one um, film company is looking at it at the moment so who knows it's done incredibly well at the London Book Fair I mean mm. I, I wrote this book Hope, knowing that I'd have a market for it in New Zealand because I'm very well known there and just hoping it might sell, you know, two dozen copies in Australia. <laughs> and uh, it's done. It's been taken up and it's going to be published in six languages. So yeah. I'm just over the moon about it. And I'm just, you know, Ellen and I have been fantastic. I've never had support like that from a publisher and it's just been a really joyous journey, actually, once, you know, the hard, most of the hard work's over. At mm. the moment, I'm having to do additions for Hodder in London because, for it, and uh, that's um, back chained to the computer. But it's, uh, it's already had a wonderful reception, and I'm just thrilled and surprised. Why <laughs> do you think people respond so well to stories about animals or pets like Cleo? Well, I think it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. It's just that, especially in these sort of complicated times that we live in, that animals remind us what life really is about, you know, and uh, they offer the healing and um, this level of affection that we often just can't get from other human beings. Mm. So um, I think the more complex and uh, difficult life gets, the greater the role pets have. Mm, absolutely. Mm. I have two cats, and as soon as I heard about your book, I knew I had to talk to you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, are they moggies or are they... Uh, they're Australian uh, Tiffany's, so they're long-haired Bermillas. Oh, that sounds high maintenance. Oh, no, they're gorgeous and very easy. <laughs> One thing I've noticed, you know, since I've told people I'm writing a book about cats, mm. so many people just, you know, open up with their wonderful stories, and it's so mm. obvious how much and you know cats mean to people. Mm. That's and why I'm not surprised at all that it's done so well already. They're very difficult animals to write about, I found, because they're so subtle, and so much of their life is internal. That um, you know, I think dogs are probably easier to write about because they're more emotional and mm. on the surface. Mm. So you know, it's pretty hard yakka. So how did you overcome that? Just observing as closely as I can, and that's why it was helpful to have this new kitten mm. and uh, seeing, uh, just watching him and trying not to 
you know, use the same words again, you know, mm. velvety fur. You can only use that once. And, the, and, and you know, their fur is soft. Their fur is, oh, just don't get me started. It's very <laughs> complicated. <laughs> you need a cat thesaurus. <laughs> yes, I do. In fact, maybe that will be my next book. <laughs> Well, if you release that, you, there's no doubt that I'll be buying that one as well. So, <laughs> anyway, um, finally, what's your advice to aspiring writers or writers who are listening to this who want to, you know, put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard and get their book done, get their book out there, particularly in a non-fiction kind of um, genre like this? What's your advice to them? Well... The first advice is to get some uh, blue tack and stick it to your bottom and <laughs> sit on your seat and stay there. I think the second advice is to be uh, remain humble and keep learning and, uh, and uh, be a slave to structure because I do think that's important. But also, I mean, be a bit cheeky. I, I had uh, no right, really, to send my idea to Ellen and Unwin's fiction Friday pitch mm. <laughs> but I got a wonderful outcome from it so you know I'd say all of that but it's a very tough world to get into writing isn't it mm. but sometimes it's worth it to bend the rules absolutely or break absolutely. the rules <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. on that note thank you so much for your time today Helen really appreciate it oh thank you Valerie it was a pleasure You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.